Republican battle Congressman Matt Gates. Matt Gates was one of the very few members in the entire Congress who bothered to stand up against permanent Washington on behalf of his constituents. Matt Gates right now, he's a problem for the Democratic Party, and he can cause a lot of hiccups in passing of laws. So we're going to keep running those stories to keep hurting him. If you stand for the flag and kneel in prayer, if you want to build America up and not burn her to the ground, then welcome, my fellow patriots. You are in the right place. This is the movement for you. You ever watch this guy on television? It's like a machine. Matt Gates. I'm a canceled man in some corners of the internet. Many days I'm a marked man in Congress, a wanted man by the deep state. They aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. Welcome to this week's episode, Jam Packed. I've got an interview with Congressman Mo Brooks. He and I serve on the Armed Services Committee together. We're going to break down all the latest information that you need to know about Ukraine, how it impacts your life and the rest of the world. But first, we are indeed on the front lines of freedom, not in some distant land, not in some faraway place, but here in our country. And more and more Americans are coming together to demand that their government be responsive to them. Truckers, convoys have linked up, united, come together. They've seen support all over the country, and they've gathered outside of Washington, D.C. at Dominion Raceway. I wanted to know what they were thinking, so I sent my colleague Chris Chella. Here's his report. This is Chris Chella reporting for Firebrand. We have been at Dominion Raceway all day with the truckers convoy, talking to our fellow Americans. And the consensus here is that this convoy, this rally, it's all about freedom. Hundreds of truckers have gathered here on their final stop to our nation's capital to protest these mask and vaccine mandates that have crippled our nation's economy and morale. What do you guys think of the whole uh, truck rally that's going on? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's so fun just to watch these truckers who are basically like real heroes. I'm from Catawba, North Carolina. Okay, and uh, why are you here today? I'm here to, uh, this is about freedom. Uh, the big part about today is, is getting people together. Uh, I, for me, we've been missing that for a very long time. we got people, kids in California. You know, they, they've been sending us letters, us truck drivers, the whole time of, of pleading for us to end the, the mask mandates. we got kids in school that still have to wear them. And we just, that's what, I got four kids. It's about my kids is what I'm doing it for. I want the Emergency Powers Act gone. This is my opinion only. Um, I'd like to see that gone. I'd like to have, let people have their choice of whether or not they want to put something in their body or put a mask on their face. We live in America and we have the Constitution and people should be able to decide what they want to inject into their bodies. And you know, Joe Biden said that he wouldn't, he couldn't force any vaccine mandates months and months and months ago. And we've seen his administration do the exact opposite. Vaccine mandates have no place in a free country. So we're here to stand with all the truckers that have traveled across the entire United States to stand up for our freedom. So for me, I believe that the truckers are one of the most over-regulated um, industries out there. I know there needs to be a lot of changes. Um, and I know that the lawmakers really need to listen to the truck drivers on what's needed and what's required. The hours of service um, issue is a huge issue and I think they need to keep pushing on that. This whole thing isn't just about the mandates, not to me. 
and not to a whole lot of people. I've just been up in Hagerstown with a whole other crew, and everybody up there, it's not just about the mandates, man. It's what about, is it? I want my kids' future, my grandkids, man, to have the freedoms of what I grew up with, being able to do this, man. You know what I'm saying? And just be ourselves. Exactly. Not tied down. And I want them to stop dividing us. I feel like they put a lot of division, and the media puts a lot of fake news and plays one side. You know, I mean, it's not right, man, you know. And I just, you know, hey, peace and love. <laughs> right, right. And do you have any faith that President Biden can resolve this issue I mean, I definitely hope so, man. He's our president, and I mean, we all got to stick together, whoever's our president, but it's got to be fair on either side, man. You know, when it's a Republican, we got to be fair to them. They're our president. So what are you hoping that lawmakers will do as a result of this, you know, this massive convoy that, you know, has never really been seen before in this country? The political community has a systemic way of kind of saying things but not really doing much. I'm an optimist, but, you know, I think being a a bit pessimistic is, is, is good because it keeps our guards up. So I, I'm just hoping that unlike what happened in the Tea Party, it's almost like they sabotaged it by taking ownership of it. I don't think that can happen with truck drivers. They're too grounded, they're too raw, they're too real, and that's just not going to happen. I'm traveling with them right now. My hands have never been so dirty and I love it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything about Biden. My personal feelings on him does not matter here. Okay, this is about this. These people all coming together and standing together. This isn't left or right. Right. Okay, this isn't black or white. This is this is the United States of America and Americans standing together. Some of these truckers traveled to Washington, D.C. We held a panel with myself, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky. You know them both well. They've both been on Firebrand a good amount. Here are some highlights from that discussion. What would be your message specifically to Republicans who would say, well, we're sympathetic against these mandates, but we've got to keep funding the government. I mean, that's our job. The federal government says, oh, we don't have nothing to do with it, but you're funding every state to enforce these things. And it's got to stop. Stop funding any of it. You guys hold the purse strings. They're here to fight for us to stop any entity from forcing bad policies on us. That's what they're supposed to do. Most of these guys in here are independent. You're not even looking at all the company drivers that their companies told them, if you go to this convoy thing, look for another job, you're fired. Tens of thousands of them that wanted to be here are not. The support that we have out there was overwhelming, and I, and I take time to talk to these people. And we'd have people come up with donations. They had little or nothing. I had a lady come up. All she had is in northern Michigan, she raised chickens. And she had 10 dozen eggs to donate. They're putting their trust in a bunch of truck drivers because their politicians are not doing what the hell they're supposed to do for them. What do you think would give people hope? Leadership. They need leadership. They don't need no BS. They need somebody to follow that has a voice, has conviction, will not back down, and has their best interests at heart. I mean, after we're gone and after the midterms, there's going to be another flare-up, I would imagine. What's to keep this from ever happening again? What do you guys have in store and in mind to keep this from ever being re-implemented and us having to come back here again to make this happen? 
During this time of pandemic, these agencies have developed these exquisite authorities that we would have never guessed. And I do think that part of the legislative agenda for Republicans should be specifically in law, black letter, no room for interpretation to constrain these elements of government uh, so that even if they only had one dollar, they wouldn't have the legal authority to go and bind people uh, to, this, to this tyranny. And now to the interview with Congressman Mo Brooks. I hope you enjoy. MAGA Mo, Mighty Mo, Mo Brooks from the state of Alabama is one of Congress's best firebrands, someone I admire and look up to a great deal. And Mo Brooks has been my colleague on the Armed Services Committee for the last five years. And we're gonna have a very important discussion about what's going on in the world. So Mo, maybe start just by letting folks know, why was the Armed Services Committee an area of focus for you in the Congress? Well, I have the home of Redstone Arsenal in the 5th Congressional District of Alabama, which is the northern part where Huntsville is, the Tennessee Valley. And we are one of the largest military facilities uh, in the United States of America. And if you look at all these gee whiz bang weapons that you see, the, the, the things that empower our military personnel to do so much with so little risk of loss of life, to a large degree that is either invented or manufactured or contracted for out of Redstone Arsenal. We have a number of different commands, including the Army Materiel Command. Everything that's purchased for the United States Army, from bread to butter to guns, to tanks goes through our Redstone Arsenal community in North Alabama. So it seemed like a pretty good fit. Well, your focus on the committee has not just been uh, for those great war fighters in Alabama. You've really been looking at a lot of the issues that go on in the world. And one thing I remember, Mo, is that when we had people like Liz Cheney and others in the Republican and Democrat establishment working against President Trump, on the Armed Services Committee, you and I would often have to team up with our friend Scott Desjardins out of Tennessee and actually fight back against what they were doing to, uh, in many ways, support other countries at the expense of our country. And so maybe talk a little bit about what it's like to be on a committee that often favors war when you and I try to do everything possible to build a strong military so that we don't have to have so many wars. Well, that's a very uh, good point to emphasize. Um, that's the second function of being on House Armed Services Committee, is making sure from a national level uh, that we have the right armaments our people need in order to win, but also to have influence on when we should actually be engaging in conflict and using uh, those armaments. And quite frankly, I'm like a lot of Americans. I'm like you. I'm like President Trump. We don't want these never-ending wars. It's a drain on our treasury. It's a cost of human life. Our young men and our young women are sacrificing their lives um, often, and sometimes they're suffering horrendous uh, personal injuries uh, with a loss of a limb or what have you uh, because of the places that we put them in harm's way across the globe. So I only want us going into military conflict if the stakes are high enough to justify it and hopefully it will be part of a multinational effort. I don't want us to be the sole cowboy on the street shoot, pulling out their six shooters and blasting away. If it's only us, that suggests to a large degree, not all the times, but to a large degree, that perhaps we shouldn't be there. If it is of interest to the entire free world and we have our allies joining with us, then by golly, that certainly increases the uh, probability that we should likewise 
uh, be involved. And so you and I, we fought uh, against some of, I don't, I don't know if I should call them warmongers. There are probably better words than that. I'll but, call them warmongers. But Liz Cheney's a warmonger. But there are people who believe in these forever wars, and it's at such cost to the treasury and cost of lives, I can't justify it. Um, and uh, for example, Afghanistan. I agree with President Trump. We should have gotten out. Now, we should have gotten out a whole lot better mm -hmm. than what you saw with the way Joe Biden so badly mishandled it. But we have people on the Armed Services Committee. We still would be over there. And there's a big reason that I don't think we should still be over there, aside from the fact that it's a cost of American lives and it's a cost to our treasury. And that is that I don't believe that the people in Afghanistan truly appreciate the sacrifices we were making on their behalf. And I think that belief has been ratified and confirmed by the debacle that has occurred after we have left. They did not adopt our principles. They did not adopt our belief systems. They have their own belief system. And unfortunately, it conflicts with ours. And we needed to realize that. In my judgment, if I had been commander in chief and I was not, and of course, in hindsight, it's a whole lot uh, better, uh, clear, that crystal ball, we should have left in 2011. Uh, that's when the military had punched the Taliban in the nose. That's when the military had toppled that government. And in 2011 is when we had killed Osama bin Laden. The military's mission was successfully accomplished and we won with winning being the definition of achieving our goals. But instead we had politicians that forced our military to be there under untenable circumstances that over 10 years did not change the ultimate outcome of where we are. I think 80% of Americans would agree with what you just said, that when you accomplish an objective, you have to notice that and you have to behave differently having accomplished the objective rather than allowing the objective to change and metastasize and sort of shift with the sands. Why do you think Washington politicians in both parties are so detached from just the common sense that most Americans, most folks in Alabama and Florida have? I'm at a real loss as to some of the things that transpire. I will say that generally I mean, they, speaking... They think we're crazy, but we think they're crazy a lot of times in this town. Generally speaking, in Washington, D.C., if you follow the money, mm. then you know why a lot of the policies are being made. I believe that our military personnel are there to fight wars. I do not believe that they're supposed to be, for decades on end, police cops on every corner of the world. That's not what they're built for. If we have to engage an enemy, our military personnel are the best in the world at engaging an enemy and doing the destruction that is necessary to accomplish whatever the mission may be. But to have them sitting on every police, uh, excuse me, every corner of the globe, that sets them up for the kind of bushwhackings, the kinds of killings, the kinds of maimings uh, that mm -hmm. we've seen all too often at a waste to our treasury and at a waste of human life, American life. So do you believe we stayed longer in Afghanistan and Iraq than we should have so that people could make money off of those wars. That probably was a factor with some individuals well, that, that's lobby, that lobby on Capitol Hill. Um, I would hope that that uh, is not the primary motivation of, our, of a lot of our congressmen and senators. I would hope that our congressmen and senators are not that misguided, but based on what I've seen in Washington, D.C., it wouldn't surprise me if that was also not a motivation for some of these people who believe in these forever wars. After all, they're not the ones going over there and fighting. They're not mm -hmm. the ones going over there and risking their lives. And it's not necessarily their money that is being spent in this endeavor. 
Uh, I believe that we need to be much more frugal, not only with our money, but our risk to human life, American human life. And we should only risk that American human life when America's national interests are truly at stake. And for the last decade in Afghanistan, in my view, and I concur with President Trump's view in this regard, over the last decade, uh, the risk to human life, the consumption of our treasury, did not justify being there for as long as we were. If you want to know what the America first foreign policy is, that's it. In a nutshell, what Congressman Brooks just said, that we put our citizens, our treasury, our service members as the prime objective. And, and if we do that, I think the decision making flows pretty naturally. But, but these, these common sense views that you consistently champion in the Congress are not always popular with the leadership. Uh, I am not a deeply popular person with the leadership of my own party, probably in either the House or the Senate. I don't get the sense that you're deeply popular with the leadership uh, in our party in the House or the Senate. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because you and I try to do what's in the best interest of America. And we believe that if we do what's in the best interest of America, that is the best way to get reelected. There are others in Washington, D.C. who believe that the best way to get elected is to satisfy the special interest groups and get the mm -hmm. money that empowers them to run these commercials that attack their opposition. Uh, that's not the way I operate. That's not the way I understand you operate. And I'll give one big example. Um, people may not know this, but you know, you have to pay money, big money, to be chairman of a major committee, to be on some of the major committees. We've broken down our committees in Congress as A, B, and C. What are the grades based on? Well, if you get on those committees, how much money can you raise from special interest groups? So if you want to be chairman of a committee, by way of example, the initial bid price might be something like a million dollars. Now think about that. You can't, as a congressman, on a regular basis, get a million dollars from your constituents. Joe and Jane Citizen, they do not have that kind of money. So who do you have to get it from in order to be one of the power players on one of these major committees? You have to get it from the special interest groups. And by definition, what do those special interest groups require? They require a quid pro quo. You've got to do something special that is far too often in conflict with the general interest of the United States of America in order to get their money. And if we've got time, I'll give a really good example that involves Thomas Massey, a congressman Please. from the state of Kentucky. Uh, a lobbyist came to Thomas Massey and said, look, I will pay your entrance fee on ways and means, uh, $500,000 if you will support this patent bill. And Thomas said, well, I'll look at your patent bill. And by the way, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, great guy. He's a libertarian Republican. He's brilliant MIT grad. His wife's an MIT grad, uh, has his own patents himself. He looks at the bill and he says, sorry, this is bad for the uh, small time inventor uh, like myself. It really helps the people with the big cash, but it's not good for America. The people actually come up with the ideas. They should be the ones who are reaping the rewards of those ideas, not somebody else who can perfect a patent simply because they have the power and the money. So he said, no. And the lobbyist said, sorry, not going to be able to pay your $500,000 cost to be on the Ways and Means Committee. And that got published on the front page of USA Today. So I saw Thomas said, I'm so glad that you did this. This process that we have established, Republicans and Democrats do it alike. They purchase these things. Those, those positions mm -hmm. are sold for money. And I said, I thought that was a great article. I can't stand the corruption of the public policy debate that we're seeing because of the way in which the House of Representatives is established. And Thomas said, well, Mo, I made one really big mistake in the article. I said, I didn't see a mistake. I thought it was fantastic. So, yeah, well, I talked about it in terms of buying these committee assignments and chairmanships. It's really a rental agreement. You've got to do it every two years. Yeah, right. And, and that's, that's, 
If you want to know why so much bad is being done in Washington, D.C., it's because of this buying and selling of committee assignments and chairmanships that so badly corrupts the public policy debate and favors the special interest groups over the regular American citizen. There might be 12 members of Congress that would lay out in technicolor what you just did. Most would be afraid to do so because they want that system to benefit them. How do we change it when there are so few of us and there are so many people who I think are good people but who get to Washington and they go to the big embassy parties and they see how the committee chairman gets more staff and a bigger office and it seduces them into this corruption. Well, you need more congressmen and senators who have integrity and will stick with that integrity come hell or high water. But the ones that don't look just like the rest of us. That is the challenge, figuring out who's who. <laughs> and the downside to all this special interest group money is they run these slick ads and these select ads are based on polling data that tells the pollster and then tells the candidate what kind of ads to run because the public has already agreed with what you're about to say. Mm -hmm. And there is no requirement that the candidate actually believe what is in those ads. Mm -hmm. But if the candidate covets that elected position, the pollster and the consultant are going to tell the candidate that's what you have to say, parrot it back to the voters. And so the challenge for us is to do our best to help the public understand the corruption that is taking place, perhaps legally, in uh, Washington, D.C., and to be mindful of the homework the voters have to do in order to ascertain what the true facts are. Don't be led like sheep, which what is what those campaigns are all about. What you described was a system by where the elected representative is essentially an actor in a movie that is written, produced, and directed by others, and they don't really believe it. Do you think that groupthink impacts Washington, D.C. more than regular America? where just everybody starts swimming in one direction and folks kind of draft in? Well, you bring up groupthink. That was a, a college reading book from when I was at uh, Duke University, uh, political science and, and some other subjects. Uh, yeah, I think that that's probably the case. There's always a go-along, get-along kind of uh, attitude that a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. uh, you do want to get along with your fellow people, and if that's what everybody else is doing, where they're selling these votes, uh, for the campaign contributions. And that seems to be a rubber stamp of approval. That seems to be a, a way things are. There are a lot of people who just go ahead and give in. They might uh, crave the political power that you get by getting a chairmanship or getting on an A committee where you can get more money from lobbyists. And so all that put together, uh, it's not good for America, but it does explain a lot about some of the bad legislation that gets passed that the voting public is so angry about and why the voting public is so often now saying a pox on both houses. Mm -hmm. The key though is for the American people to get smarter, to figure out what's going on and then to vote accordingly. Because after all, what we have in Washington DC is by definition what the people wanted because the people sent them there. I think also just a little bit of political courage can do great damage to the groupthink dynamic here in Washington. I saw that in you. When, when we saw an election that we had legitimate concerns about, where we saw uh, illegal aliens voting, where we saw uh, a departure from constitutional standards, from the way elections had been run all of our lives to this new pandemic justification for all these changes in law, you were the very first person in Congress who said that you intended to offer an objection. Now, everyone makes that out to be some some, some uh, really unprecedented event. We, of course, know that Jim McGovern objected to your state of Alabama in 2017, which I think President Trump won by about 40 points, would probably win it even bigger today. 
but but you platformed this objection and I remember specifically a meeting with you where you laid out your purpose you gathered Republicans together who had made comments after you initially took this bold position and really your purpose was to set the stage for the coming years so that we could fix problems so that we could make elections better D do you feel like what you were originally aiming for and what, what what the way you inspired people like me like Madison Cawthorn like many others to offer our objection as well that that's been misinterpreted by the media well of course the media is basically the propaganda wing of the socialist movement of America so you can't expect them to tell the truth I mean you just can't uh, it's unfortunate uh, but the advent of the internet uh, with the advent uh, or combination with their biases makes them almost wholly and completely unreliable untrustworthy and probably you could give them the kind of um, credibility that you could give the old Pravda coming out of Moscow. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, is, it is a big but, challenge. But what do you think they get wrong about your goals? Well, I'm, I have a different belief system. That's it. They, they're attacking me based on a belief system. They don't want to analyze whether you and I are right or wrong. They just want to figure out the best way to attack. And if there's not an honest way, then they'll resort to a dishonest way. Uh, but when you get into uh, what happened with the elections in 2020, I'll say what I've said many times before. In my judgment, if only lawful votes cast by eligible American citizens were counted, Donald Trump won the Electoral College. To get that out to the public, though, unfortunately, we often have to go through the news media. And the news media shuts you down. Big tech. They'll start censoring you if you if You've you already that. said enough where I can't post this on YouTube. <laughs> well, we'll be on Rumble, but you've, you've already said enough where we can't post this on, on YouTube. But everybody just needs to do one thing. Go read the 2005 Bipartisan Commission on Federal Election Reform Report, and it itemizes the systemic flaws in our election system. This is a group headed up by Jimmy Carter, Democrat, James Baker, Ronald Reagan, White House Chief of Staff, and they examined all the basic flaws, the weaknesses that allow people to steal elections in the United States of America, and what the Democrats did in 2020 was use that as their playbook. Mm. And they magnified those flaws and took advantage of them. But read mm. that report and you'll find out what truly is going on with our election system. And I'm pretty sure that, what, 17 years ago, they did not have a bias about Ronald, excuse me, not Ronald Reagan, that's James Baker, about uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in 2020. They didn't have that in their minds when they wrote that 2005 report. And so I think you can take it with some degree of confidence that they really mean what they say. And you had mass mail out of ballots. Don't do it. That's the number one place for voter fraud. You mentioned it earlier. Too many non-citizens are voting in our election. In my judgment in 2020, Bath I did is probably in the neighborhood of 900,000 to 1.7 million non-citizens voted in our you election. You had specific concerns about Nevada. Because yeah. what I remember is when we were strategizing for a debate on January 6th, not violence, not harm to our country, but a debate, different members had signed up to present the objections and lay out the affidavits and the evidence and the regression analysis on the data. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and I, I know we're working on Michigan. Our colleague Jody Heiss was working on Georgia. Uh, I believe that uh, Jim Jordan was working on Pennsylvania. And you said you wanted a volunteer to organize the data for the Nevada election. And you showed us some pretty compelling information about illegal aliens voting in the state of Nevada. Well, it's Nevada, but it's also across the board with almost every state in the union, okay? Mm -hmm. And I should add that history is proving us right. Yeah. We've had a uh, multi-judge court order out of Pennsylvania that has found something like 2.6 million 
ballots that were illegally cast in violation of law. In Wisconsin, we've now had a trial court judge uh, find that there were also a number of legal violations with the, with the way in which the election process was handled there with an admonishment to, if I recall correctly, the Wisconsin uh, Secretary of State. Uh, so history is proving us right, but most importantly, we had mass violation of Article One, Section 4 of the United States Constitution. That is the election clause for the uh, watchers, the listeners who are unfamiliar with it, that says that it is up to the legislature and the United States Congress, those two bodies, to determine the, quote, times, places, and manner, end quote, of elections. Not secretaries of state, not Pennsylvania Supreme Court judges or any other judges, but those two bodies. And Article 1, Section 4 was violated in mass across uh, the United States of America in 2020. And I could also add that another uh, big violation dealt with the United States Code section that sets our election day. It's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. We did not set an election week or an election month or an election season. You're supposed to vote on that election day under the United States Code, and there are specific exceptions where you can vote absentee ballot under the United States Code, oh, but and Mo the Democrats just threw that all the out the left tells us that's racist, that, that, that if you don't have early voting and vote by mail, if you just have an election day, that that, 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 that is, has a discriminatory effect. What would be your response to that? Well, the racist premise of that argument is that somehow minorities lack the ability to do what everybody else can do, and exactly. I reject that premise. All of us are being treated absolutely equal under the law, uh, and to suggest that someone is inferior in some way and cannot get it done when everybody else can, that's the racism. Well, you really were the one that I think brought the Congress into focus on these issues of election integrity. It's clear you haven't stopped fighting for election integrity. Do you think that Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy understand the fight we're in with Democrats trying to steal elections? Or do you think that they would prefer this issue uh, be left to the side? And I ask you that because in a lot of these polls commissioned by the leadership, they don't even put election integrity on the list of things for people to express their concern about. Um, Kevin McCarthy may have some. I've not really had a discussion with him. I'm pretty much persuaded that Mitch McConnell has no concern about voter fraud and election theft activity. Uh, you've seen his comments post-January 6th, and, and for that matter, on January 6th and before January 6th. Uh, he just discounted the possibility of this massive voter fraud election theft activity that was taking place where you're violating the recommendations of the Commission on Federal Election Reform, and you're violating the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 4. You were violating the United States Code section that sets a 24-hour window on the calendar, that one day on the calendar, as a day in which we're supposed to vote. There are violations all over the place, and you have to ask yourself, well, why are the Democrats doing this if not to steal votes? So Mitch McConnell has punished Josh Hawley for making these points. He's said negative things about Ted Cruz for making these points. Um, how tenable is it to have one of the ostensible leaders of our party take positions that are, that are so um, divorced from where our voters are? Well, the unfortunate part of all this is, again, Mitch McConnell oh, it goes back to the controls money. a lot of money. And it's so, so corrupt. It's just sickeningly corrupt. It's why Washington is in the mess that it's in. You're totally right about that. You're totally right about that. It's, it is so much about the financial desire for people to be able to keep these jobs or move up. And then, and then whether it's the forever wars or whether it's protecting people's votes, the elected representatives won't go to battle for the people. And, and the few who do, 
then get targeted, get maligned, um, and are, they try to distract us away from this important work to save the country. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the ongoing activities in Ukraine. Again, I know that as members of the Armed Services Committee, we're getting briefed more regularly than most members of Congress. I'd love your perspective on how you think this is going to resolve. I'm very proud that the free world has stepped up to the plate, at least with materials and supplies, uh, weaponry, uh, humanitarian relief, uh, for the Ukraine nation. Hopefully it will be enough and hopefully it will be done quickly so that uh, it can be used to maximum effect. Um, I am troubled that we are not using economic sanctions to the degree that we should. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those who believes a war, uh, a Vietnam lesson was, war is hell, you don't get in unless you're gonna win it. If you're not willing to do what's necessary to win it, then don't get in. So do everything you can or do nothing. There are two extremes. And with economic sanctions, we are not all in. And if we're not going to be all in, we should be all out. I recommend that we be all in so that we actually prevail in the economic battle. That do you, you support a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Uh, I, I will support with respect to Ukraine, by and large, whatever the European nations support, but the European nations have to take the lead. It has to matter more to Europe than it does to us, That's right? correct. It has to. And uh, whatever the American people are willing to support with respect to the investment of our treasury and the risk of our lives. Mm -hmm. But as a bedrock principle, we should not send American troops or aircraft in or over the Ukraine. We should be in a position to consider that if our European allies have first taken the lead role and the majority substantive role, in which case we should be in a position to consider supporting our allies in their endeavor. But if they're not willing to risk their own people, their own economies, their own equipment, then that should tell us that if it's not worth it to them, it's not worth it to the United States of America. But if it is worth it to them, then I am more than happy to consider what request that they may make of us to insist them to ensure that it is a successful endeavor. And I say that in this context. I'm mindful of what happened in World War II. Mm -hmm. Adolf Hitler and dictatorial socialist Germany, they took land, they took land, they took land, they took land, they took land about five different times and maybe more in five different nations. And finally, uh, they took Poland, which precipitated World War II with the UK and the French declaring war. But you had this appeasement for a long period of time. And that appeasement empowered and emboldened Adolf Hitler and dictatorial socialist Germany. Do you think we're in an era of appeasement now with Putin? Uh, to some degree we are. We certainly have been. The Ukraine was first invaded in 2014 with the Crimea. What did the world do? Little to nothing. Yeah, but I mean, Ukraine they, and Russia were in the same country when, like, I was at 10. one point in 1991. Everyone acts up. like it's like the the biggest thing in the world. I mean, I, I, I you know, well, I, I agree with you that Europe ought to be in the lead, and this has to matter more to Europe more than it does to us, or anything we do wouldn't be successful anyway. Now, you and I again have been uh, have gotten the benefit of a lot of briefings where we have seen. Europe doing a little more than, than even, frankly, I expected at the outset. And we, we can't get into too many details, obviously, in this format because some of that information is classified. But uh, it is not as if Europe has 
withdrawn from what is going on in Russia, Ukraine, which is comforting because they ought to be in the lead. I don't know that I would be uh, as, as uh, accommodating to any request for a no-fly zone because we have to recognize that Russia is a nuclear power, right? And, you know, Germany in uh, World War II wasn't. And so it was more about land than about some of these strategic features. Well, I think features. the real question is, where do you think Russia will stop? Because at one point in time, the old Soviet Union also had control over various parts of Poland, mm -hmm. the Balkans, go down the list of nations. So are they going to have a similar claim to a right to invade and conquest of each of those other nations, some of which are members of NATO now? Well, and you could tell you're obviously closely watching Putin's rhetoric that would gaslight that very proposition, right? I mean, when you look at what Putin's saying, his ambitions seem to go beyond Ukraine, don't they? They do. And I would emphasize that uh, I don't want Ukraine to be in a conflict with Russia for many, many years. But one of the nice things about what happened with Afghanistan and Russia, when the United States, you may have seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War. I have. Where yeah, the United yeah. States began supplying sense. weaponry to uh, the Afghan people, mm -hmm. that that tied down the Soviet Union forces. And that also, to some degree, with a lot of other things going on, to some degree, helped bring about the breakup of the Soviet Union so that we had one less major problem area on the planet. Now you've got Russia under Putin trying, in effect, to recreate a dictatorial landmass called Russia out of the old pieces of the Soviet Union. And you put that many more people, that many more natural resources, that many more of everything into a larger aggressor nation, and then you have a real problem. Don't get me wrong, Russia is a real problem now, but if it's a bigger Russia, it's a bigger problem until such time as they're able to replace Putin with a liberty-loving, a freedom-loving uh, governance. Should right that now, happen? Should the people of Russia be thinking about regime change? Absolutely. I said that in a speech on the House floor this week, uh, that the Russian people, I hope, will learn from history. Uh, we in America, we had our Revolutionary War heroes with George mm -hmm. Washington, Patrick Henry. We had our battles at Saratoga, Cowpens, uh, Kings Mountain, of course, Yorktown at the end, go down the list. And to have liberty and freedom, sometimes you have to fight for it. Hopefully. I think always you do, right? I mean, it, my proposition is freedom cannot be won for a group of people by a foreign force. They have to fight for it. They have to develop the heroes, just like you're saying, so that there's a sense of nationalism where they protect that freedom from any strongman in the future. Well, I would hope that the Russian people would be able to topple the current Russian government without loss of life. But if they want liberty and freedom, they're going to have to do what it takes. They That's can't even protest in the life. streets without loss of life right now. I mean, it's it's pretty brutal over there. And, and Thousands are being imprisoned simply because they engage in no war protests. And I, we might not see all of the all of those people back in their families and in their communities again, which would be a real shame. You know, we we come from the land of the Lower Creeks, Moa, in Alabama and in Florida, and in those Native American communities. There was always someone designated as the firekeeper, the person who ensured that values and beliefs uh, were maintained and, and that there was that sense of culture. And you really are the MAGA America First firekeeper for our movement in the Congress. You were espousing these beliefs and fighting these battles, I would suggest even before Donald Trump was elected president. And I know that for some of the newer members of Congress, like myself, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn, we really look up to you. And we, we sit together on the floor, folks may not know that, but we sit a few seats away from each other. And I know how much I benefit from the experience you bring, but also your willingness to buck this corrupt place 
when necessary. And I want to thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a great firebrand. And we wish you the best of luck in all your endeavors. Thank you so much, Matt. I very much appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We want you to be subscribed with those notifications turned on. And if you're listening on Apple, we're closing in on 4,000 ratings. So just give us that five-star uh, denotation. We appreciate the help. And we hope you'll join us next week for more Firebrand.